sun is up, I'm off to the river now. Sit beneath the morning sun. Gone away, washed away, watch the clouds roll by. And there I sit, I close my eyes. Thinking, oh. Welcome, friends. This is A Better World Podcast. 30 minutes of inspiration from the worlds of business and the arts. This is Mark Ross, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, friends. This week, I would like to talk about the 2019 Force for Good forecast. This report was Uh, put out at the end of March by an organization called Future 500. They are a nonprofit consultancy whose mission is to build trust between companies, advocates, investors, and philanthropists to advance business as a force for good. And in this report, they highlight 10 elements uh, that we can expect to see in 2019. And the first of which, number one, is that 2019 is going to be the year of broken promises. And they mean uh, by that statement that a lot of companies, including my former employer, employer Alcoa, made a, made a bunch of 2020 uh, corporate promises with regard to benchmarks. Uh, it could be about carbon emissions. It could be about wastewater reduction. It could be about sustainability targets and other net zero deforestation promises. And we're going to start to see those promises broken in 2019 across the board. And companies are going to either have to make excuses or give reasons why they didn't meet their 2020 goals or revise those goals to 2030. And it's going to, of course, open these companies up to a bunch of criticism and negative press if companies aren't starting to think about what promises they made and how they're going to address the fact that they didn't meet their 2020 goals. Number two is we're going to continue to see this rise of change agents. And what what Future 500 means by that is we're going to see a breaking down of silos between environmental and social goals and concerns. And one only has to look at the Green New Deal to see that uh, companies and advocates are starting to look cross-functionally in their organizations as to how some of these social and environmental goals and initiatives are intertwined. So we'll continue to see a rise of of these silo-breaking change agents. The third prediction for 2019 in the forecast is we're going to see the end of these quid pro quo tax rebate deals. And here, what they're talking about are these tax incentives for companies like Amazon to come into New York, which of course fell apart or for Disney to expand operations in Anaheim. And these are all um, examples of uh, these promises for jobs in exchange for tax rebates. And they're starting to be challenged, and we're going to continue to see this end of quid pro quo in these communities. Number four, we'll see a continued pulling back on the covers uh, on arguments that moving operations south or to third world countries increases prosperity. We know that that isn't always the case. In fact, sometimes it just moves externalities to communities and to areas of the world that 
have less regulation and create bigger environmental and social problems. As this world continues to get smaller and smaller and we're able to identify real problems in these third world countries, we're going to start to see that argument start to fall by the wayside, that this increases pro prosperity, moving these jobs to these countries. Number five is we're going to see a continued expansion of the Me Too movement, which just got started in the last couple of years, really on the basis of sexual harassment, sexual assault, but it has expanded tremendously to issues around diversity and inclusion and gender parity and pay parity for men and women. Uh, so the Me Too movement is going to continue to expand in 2019. Number six, we're going to see the increasing use of science-based targets when creating company goals. So instead of just, we're going to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by X number of tons or our gallons of wastewater or our waste diversion to landfills, we're going to start to see goals based on, say, we cannot have more than a two degree rise, two degree Celsius rise in the atmosphere. And we're going to start to determine targets based around those elements, such as the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, that will then drive companies to start to make their own benchmarks instead of just making benchmarks first as to what they could possibly do or what they aspire to do. Number seven, we're going to continue to see the C-suite stepping up when it comes to environmental and social issues. It's no longer an issue just for companies like Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's, but rather we're going to see companies like we saw in the past year, Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, banning assault weapons or, or no longer selling assault weapons or Nike and their Colin Kaepernick commercial uh, with regard to race. We're going to start to see companies like Gillette which had their toxic masculinity commercial. Uh, and more and more companies are going to start to take more public uh, stances on political, social, and environmental issues. That seems to be the trend. Number eight, plastics are going to continue to become a more relevant issue as we talk about sustainability issues. And it's no longer going to be just about plastic bags and straws but rather we're going to start to see real movement on a larger discussion around plastics. So serviceware, cups, packaging in particular. If you think about all of the things we buy that are in packaging that is not that is single-use plastic and that is not sustainable, uh, shrink wrapping, just about everything that we buy on the marketplace. What did we do before plastics? Well, we had boxes that weren't shrink-wrapped. We had uh, vegetables and fruits sold in bulk that you put in bags that weren't plastic. So we're going to continue to see this expansion of the plastic pollution issue. Number nine, climate neutrality is no longer enough. It's no longer enough to say net zero on our climate action. The Green New Deal has quite a number of aspirational measures that, that would be taken to firmly reduce impact on climate. We're going to continue to see shareholder challenges against companies that don't take climate seriously and affirmatively move to reduce their impact on the environment. It's no longer enough to say we have net zero. 
and we're also going to see a rise of uh, an argument around climate pricing, which in the end we know will drive down the use of carbon or the emission of carbon. And finally, number 10, uh, we're going to see 2020, which is on the horizon, in just a matter of a few short months as a turning point opportunity. Not only is it the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, but it's also, uh, as I mentioned, these 2020 goals are all going to come to a head. And it's also the 2020 Summer Olympics, which will create a platform and a stage for companies to continue to uh, showcase their purpose moving forward. So it's very exciting where we are right now in 2019. I'm encouraged by where we're heading and the pressures, external and internal, that will create opportunities for companies to be a force for good. I'd like to know what you think. If you have any thoughts, please send them to me. I'd love to talk about them in a future episode. You can send them to mark, M-A-R-C, at needleconsultants.com. All right. Well, with us today, we've got John Marler, who is the Vice President of Energy and Environment for AEG Worldwide. Welcome to A Better World Podcast, John. Thanks, Mark. How's it going? It's going great. You have such a fascinating background and are working in such a great position to bring sustainability to the entertainment industry. I thought it would be great to have you on A Better World. I'd love to ask you, though, first about uh, how you got to AEG. I know that you... Um, are an environmental turning, attorney by training, but before that and before you went to law school, you were an environmental professional. Can you talk a little bit about your background that led you up to your position at AEG? Sure. So uh, after graduate school at the University of Colorado, uh, I worked for a local nonprofit that was monitoring the cleanup on the Superfund site, uh, and uh, that took me to law school. Um, ended up practicing law for four years in New York City. Uh, and around that time, I got really interested in the clean tech and renewable energy space. So um, I was looking around uh, for jobs, trying to break into that industry, and, and was hired at Southern California Edison in 2009. So I went there to work in their renewable and alternative power department, basically administering the power purchase agreements that Edison was signing with the first generation of uh, renewable power plant projects uh, under California's uh, RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard Program. Um, so that was really educational and uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, and then about four years later, I saw the posting for AEG's uh, sustainability and energy position and got really excited about it uh, because while I was working at Edison, I also was volunteering on my city sustainability committee. And uh, so that really kind of gave me an entree into how to track data, how to write up a program, how to create goals, things like that. And so the AEG position was really a good, good fit for me and also obviously very exciting as someone who's really into sports and music. Uh, so that was uh, 2013, so coming up on my six-year anniversary in the position and at the company. So uh, just to be clear, so you're a scientist first. You're a hydrogeologist and um, uh, a geologist and chemist before you went to law school. Then you came out of law school combining that science background with a legal background practicing environmental law. 
in-house, and uh, and then you went to AEG to bring all that together in the entertainment space. Kudos yeah. to you for being able Thank to you. leverage your education and your and your passions. Uh, I'm all Thank for you. it. Uh, I would say it had more to do with avoiding having a real job uh, as long as I could, but thank you. <laughs> so, so talk a little bit about um, your role at AEG as, as Vice President of Energy and Environment. What does that all entail? Okay, so we have two programs uh, with the Energy and Environment team. Uh, we have AEG Energy Services, which is uh, how we manage energy procurement, utility bill management, and energy projects for our worldwide network of uh, venues. And then we have AG One Earth, which is our corporate environmental sustainability program, which you know handles collecting data, setting goals, doing the reporting and transparency element, and then also working with uh, our various operations worldwide to help them implement sustainability projects that are gonna actually, you know, reduce our environmental footprint and help us be greener. And it sounds like you have your feet in both of those worlds, both the AEG One Earth program as well as the energy part of the organization. Right. On a day-to-day -day basis, I would say I spend a little bit more time on the energy side because, you know, that's my background from uh, the utility perspective. But, uh, you know, we have two other folks on the team which are working, you know, literally every day around the clock, collecting the data, uh, doing QA, QC on the data, and then working with our venues on, on anything from uh, waste and recycling projects to water conservation projects, uh, communications projects. So, yeah, definitely both feet, but I would say the, the lead foot is on the energy side just because that's the uh, biggest impact on our financials and our uh, carbon footprint. And do you have a counterpart that also works on other environmental sustainability initiatives for under the One Earth program, such as uh, waste issues or water use issues or other uh, environmental issues around those operations? Yeah, so we have a project manager on, on our team that does discrete projects. Uh, and lately she's been doing a lot on waste and recycling, but I would say it's very much a team effort. Uh, the other part that I haven't mentioned is that you know, we have directors of operations, engineers, uh, coordinators, and people like that at the buildings that are also working with us. So I, I kind of uh, put ourselves out there as more of consultants and support to help people, you know, move projects across the finish line. But, you know, the, the folks that work in the venues are really the critical piece of it, because if it's something that doesn't work for them or they're not open to doing, then it's not going to happen. In terms of some of the achievements and accomplishments that you and your team have been able to um, to make happen, can you talk a little bit about what some of those metrics have been looking like? So for the corporate level, and I want to start there just because that's the element that our uh, team, I think, really brings to the company of, uh, you know, knowing the sustainability field, knowing what trends are, and then implementing those for our company. So... The thing that I'm most proud of is that we have a science-based target for our greenhouse gas emissions. That's something that we adopted in 2016 after spending about 18 months analyzing the issue and trying to figure out what the right path was and how to implement the guidance for our you know, specific needs as, as a company. Uh, and where we landed, I think, was a really good place. Uh, the other thing that we added was having a risk-based water goal. So, you know, 
prior iterations of our water goal, we just said, you know, we picked a number out of the sky and said, hey, we want to reduce water. Um, but as our portfolio grew and as we gathered more data, we started to realize, you know, there's some parts of the world that are lucky enough not to have serious issues with water supply. Uh, and then there are other parts of the world that are literally running out of potable water. So we started using uh, the World Resource Institute's aqueduct tool to basically identify which sites were in high risk or extremely high risk uh, areas and then uh, adapt a goal for water conservation in those areas. So that's what we've done at the program level. Uh, and, you know, we would be here all day if we were to talk about kind of site-level projects, uh, but if you'd like some examples, I'm certainly happy to talk to any of those. Well, before we get to some examples, what does the portfolio look like? Uh, how many venues and how many countries? So right now it's over 90, uh, stretching from Sydney, Australia, uh, to Stockholm, Sweden, uh, and everywhere in between. So uh, Shanghai and China, uh, we just opened the Antel Arena in uh, Montevideo, Uruguay, uh, all over the United States, Australia, the United Kingdom, Germany, Sweden, uh, and I think that covers the geography, but uh, it's pretty diverse. And part of that is a challenge in terms of uh, language barriers and different legal and regulatory regimes. But at the same time, we also get to see a huge variety in approaches, and I think that really helps strengthen our program. And it sounds like there's a, a mixture of old builds and, and new green builds, I assume. Some of these are revamped venues, and some of these are brand new venues. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I would say roughly 25% are going to be relatively new, new builds that are uh, either up to the latest codes uh, or LEED certified. Uh, and then the balance are going to be anything from, you know, a few decades old to 1920s era historic properties. Right. Uh, and you had mentioned that you could give a couple examples of, of what some of the work you've done with some of these uh, properties has, has looked like. Can you just give us an idea of a couple examples? Yeah, I think it depends on what you're interested in. You know, I think the things that are more headline grabbing are things like solar panels. You know, uh, the Staples Center here in downtown LA, we put 346 kilowatts of solar panels uh, on the roof in 2009. That project's actually now over a decade old. Um, so that was a big first in the arena world, and it's something that's been working out great ever since. Um, at the Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, uh, we were the first stadium in the world to add a bank of Tesla batteries to basically help us manage our uh, demand uh, by allowing us to kind of run partially off the battery during the events to uh, reduce our impact on the grid. In Germany at the Mercedes-Benz Arena, we have uh, a cogeneration plant, which we use to uh, wring efficiency out of our natural gas supply, create heat and electricity for the venue behind the meter. Um, so those are kind of the, you know, the big uh, attention-grabbing projects, but the thing that has me most excited now are uh, more of the materials management, waste recycling projects that we've seen people do in the last 12 to 18 months. And what do those look like? So, again, it's probably not something that people are going to get hugely excited about, but I feel like they're extremely important. And, and it really started last year with the plastic straw. Uh, 
I'm not even sure what the word you would use for it, the plastic straw situation. Um, you know, kind of out of nowhere, uh, people got really spun up about straws, and it was something that, you know, we had always kind of recommended as a best practice to make them available on uh, demand or just not have them at all. But it wasn't something that we really pushed because we didn't spend a lot of money on straws, and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of volume. But as we started working on it, I think we saw that it was really symbolically important to kind of get people's attention around the plastics problem and the single use issue. And so since that time, I've been really impressed with the efforts that people have taken around the globe to kind of assess their operations and say, what are we doing here? Uh, and where can we make improvements? So you have people, uh, switching off of single-use plastic water bottles or like the water coolers that have the five-gallon plastics, and they're putting in permanently plumbed water refill stations. Oftentimes at the same time, they're giving their employees uh, reusable water bottles to use around the office. They're going into their office spaces and getting rid of single-use serviceware and bringing in mugs and glasses and plates and silverware and things like that. Uh, they're getting rid of the uh, individual creamers and moving on to the pump models. So again, all this stuff seems kind of obvious and, and maybe not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But to me, it's real evidence that these messages are starting to sink in and people kind of are starting to understand the importance and they're taking action. And, and those actions, you know, especially when you consider the straws, uh, you know, it does have a big impact. I mean, when we uh, uh, switched our straw policy at Staples Center, that, that was estimated to reduce single-use plastic straws by 500,000 each year. You know, and if you think about, uh, you know, Staples is one of, you know, hundreds of arenas around the world, that, that really adds up. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I understand as AEG continues to grow, the footprint of the company continues to grow. So you, you have trends of increasing power usage, increasing waste, increasing water usage. But are you able to document um, that your efforts have led to percentage reductions of those items uh, as you have implemented changes at, at your venues? So the challenge with our business and our business model is uh, we're an event business. Uh, and so in, in a perfect world, we would be maxing out our event calendar uh, wherever possible. And so what we've seen is through our portfolio uh, since we set our benchmark in 2010 is that we are making notable efficiencies, uh, and that's coming in the form of LED lights and variable speed drives and, and low flow uh, fixtures and things like that, you know, all the things that you, you would think about. But if you were used to doing 250 events a year and now you're doing 275, well, now you have, you know, resource use going in the opposite direction. And so what we've pretty much found is that a lot of these efforts kind of counteract each other. And that our, uh, while we're realizing efficiencies, they're kind of counteracted by business growth. And uh, that has really caused us to kind of take a pause and figure out, well, how do we deal with that, uh, you know, from a resource consumption perspective and from a carbon perspective, because it's really made, us, made it more difficult for us to meet our uh, carbon emissions goal. Interesting. And then one of the other areas that AEG is involved in is, is not just uh, owning venues, um, but you have concert tours uh, or other kinds of tours, 
uh, and you also have uh, a festival or more than one festival, Coachella being the one that's the one that immediately comes to mind. Does your work touch on on those types of matters as well? Absolutely. Anything that we uh, control from an operational perspective worldwide, uh, we work with them, we collect their data, and they're part of the program. So that extends to the festivals, which are anything from, like you said, Coachella to the Barclay Card British Summertime event in London. Uh, we've got the Amgen Tour of California uh, bike race that's coming up in May. We have a new uh, Deutschland Tour that's, that's, that's just started last year in uh, Germany. So all of the above. Yeah. Do you find that some of the actions that you take are being pushed or advocated for by artists uh, or other uh, teams that you work with where it's coming from, in essence, the people you serve? Yes and no. Uh, I think if you were to look at the, the total number and volume of initiatives, I would say they're more internally driven. Um, but we are starting to see more vocal requests from the artist community. Seems like, uh, from what I've seen, the, the two biggest initiatives are around uh, water bottles. So a lot of the touring acts are, are requesting that, that they don't see those backstage. Uh, or even in the front of house areas, and then also reusable cups. So a lot of artists like Radiohead and, and U2, right now Mumford & Sons is on the road with our cup, and, and they have a uh, pretty workable reusable cup model, which we are uh, have been pretty pleased with how it's worked and, and now trying to figure out how we can implement that on a permanent basis. Yeah. So what's coming up next for AEG? What are your next initiatives? What are your um, your goals as you continue to scale and grow? So unfortunately, given where we're, uh, the timing of our conversation, there are some big announcements coming out on Earth Day on April 22nd, so I can't really give you too much of a sneak peek. I would just say, please stay tuned and, and take a look at our report when it comes out on Earth Day, because there's gonna be an exciting set of announcements there. Um, but I would say secondarily to that, uh, it's really the continuing work around waste recycling and materials management. And I can't stress that enough. You know, we're seeing, uh, all kinds of articles, uh, you know, on a daily basis about the state of, of recycling and how that has really been, uh, a misleading, um, story that's been told to Americans and in and, and other developed countries where, you know, people thought they were doing a good thing by putting things in a bin. And as it turns out, the, these items were just being shipped overseas uh, and often leading to environmental problems in those uh, receiving countries. And so we're taking a very close and aggressive look at realizing that even if you have perfect recycling, uh, you, you haven't solved that problem of where these plastic single-use materials going. So we're taking a very comprehensive and aggressive look at where we can basically convert those materials as much as possible. So it started with the straws, obviously. Now we're looking at the plastic water bottles. We're looking at the, the plastic beverage cups, you know, with folks like our cup and stack cup. Uh, but we're really looking at all the food service items, you know, um, the nacho boats, the disposable forks, the napkins, the condiment wrappers and things like that. And, and trying to figure out, is there a better way to do this that, that doesn't uh, require us to rely on either landfilling or incinerating or 
quote, recycling, end quote, these materials when we know that that's, you know, not really uh, maybe the best thing for uh, the folks who are getting those materials from us. So you're looking at more uh, at some more compost types of solutions. Well, compost specifically for food waste, yes. And I would say in the last couple of years, that's been a very aggressive program, and we've had several venues that have made progress in the area of dealing with food and other organic wastes. But I think what you're really referring to is compostable serviceware, and I personally am, am not a big fan of that approach. I feel like it doesn't really solve the whole concept of single use, and you know. In practice, what we're seeing is even if you purchase the so-called compostable material, it's not actually composted unless it's collected, segregated, and then taken to a facility that can actually break it down. And there's a lot of failure points in that chain, probably the most important of which is the fact that there are very few, if any, facilities that can actually break that material down. So while people are pitching the idea of the compostable service where I would say we recommend, you know, trying to find a better way uh, until that service model, you know, is proven to be a lot more effective than it is today. Yeah, oftentimes um, that's window dressing, and most of the country doesn't have the ability to process compostable uh, serviceware. Um, although, that said, I've seen um, more and more science coming out about compostable serviceware now being infused with agents that allow it to be backyard composted, which certainly wasn't the case two, three, four, five years ago. Uh, yep. So there's hope there. So Earth Day report is coming out for AEG Worldwide. Where will people be able to see that report and those initiatives? So that'll be on our website uh, at aegworldwide.com, or if you want to just go directly to the report, it's aeg1earthreport.com. Uh, and uh, you know we publish it in PDF form every year. This is the second year we'll be doing that on Earth Day. Uh, and, you know, kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, accomplishments, you know, I think it's actually noteworthy that this is our eighth sustainability report. I don't know of a lot of companies in the sports entertainment industry that even put out a report, much less that have been doing it for as long as we have. This is the sixth one that I've been personally involved in, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and then the other thing to mention is both of our programs, uh, AG One Earth started in 2007, so we're now in our second decade of uh, our program, and Energy Services started in 2009. So, you know, again, just starting our 11th year, and, uh, you know, I think we have a very deep and broad knowledge base to work from uh, when it comes to, you know, our buildings and our operations, kind of knowing what works for us. Yeah. Are you also involved in the Green Sports Alliance? We are. We are. So we're a founding partner in that organization, and happily, the percentage of AEG teams and, and buildings has decreased over time as that, that organization has grown. Uh, they have their summit coming up uh, this June in Philadelphia. We're hoping to do a panel discussion there actually about uh, how to engage with your uh, communities, specifically the youth, to talk to them about CSR initiatives. So, you know, the theme of this year's Green Sports Alliance is um, playing for the next generation, which is, I think, given the climate protests that we're seeing uh, around the world this week is totally apt and timely. And uh, I'm really excited to kind of 
join the conversation and, and, and hear what people are saying. Well, John, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to speak with me today uh, about AEG Worldwide and what you've been doing there uh, with regard to energy and environment and sustainability, and uh, really appreciate your time on, on a, a Better World podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. And that's this episode of A Better World. If you found this podcast to be helpful, useful, inspiring, please consider subscribing wherever podcasts are heard. You can find out more information about this particular episode as well as our other episodes on our website, www.abetterworldpodcast.net. From your comments and suggestions and feedback, you can send that all to Mark, M-A-R-C, at needleconsultants.com. I'm Mark Ross, and I look forward to joining you next time as we explore how we can all help to create a better world.